Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Subtang, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. I'm Will Summer, and we're joined today by guest host Kelly Weil. Hey, Will. So we're hearing a lot about this Facebook metaverse, and for people who aren't keeping up to uh, up to date with Mark Zuckerberg's latest pronouncements, Facebook renamed itself Meta. But Will, I think you have a cautionary tale of the metaverse that our uh, listeners might want to clue into. Yeah, so the metaverse, this is a thing people get to write kind of like thumb-sucking op-eds about. Oh, but basically they're talking about, you know, living in virtual reality. If people ever saw the children's show Reboot, where there were these villains named like Hexadecimal and I think like Megamind or whatever, and they were like evil computer chips. It's kind of like that. And so, but, but you know, Mark Zuckerberg's video of him kind of wandering around in the metaverse and meeting cyber Mark Zuckerberg reminded me of an ugly experience I had in the metaverse on Second Life. So journey back, if you will, to Fever Dreams, the college years. <laughs> the throwback. I'm always ready. So this was around 2008 or 2009, and I, I was in college, and I had a professor who was really into Second Life. And he said, he said, okay, we're going to have a meeting where class is going to meet in Second Life. And this is, you know, Second Life is already kind of past its heyday at this point. It's about six or seven years old. And so he says, okay, we're going to have a meeting in Second Life. I had never used Second Life before. But he said, we're going to have a meeting in Second Life. And if you show up and have customized your character in some way, you'll get extra credit. So I was like, okay, great. So I'm going to start Second Life 30 minutes before this meeting. I download it. I get in and I go to a free clothing shop. But it turns out Second Life is pretty difficult to use. And I get stuck with a gimp costume. (laughs) (laughs) Like a leather gimp costume. And I'm like, well, that's okay. I still got 20 minutes. And I'm like frantically going through the menus just trying to get like a t-shirt and shorts or something. And I can't do it. And then it's I'm like a minute late to class. So I was like, okay, I got to go to this meeting, right? So, so I go to this meeting and everyone else you know, is wearing the default clothes and I'm in a gimp costume and my professor <laughs> says, you know, uh, you know, well, I, I hope you all have a, a, some time after this to poke around Second Life. It seems like Will is already quite familiar with Second Life. <laughs> this is like the proto Zoom nightmare, right? This is like it's the it's a mashup between like a Zoom 
classroom error and the uh, nightmare you have of like showing up to work in your underwear is I, I love it yeah it's kind of like shades of jeffrey tubin perhaps point being uh you know I, that's just a cautionary tale as we all enter the world of the metaverse i think you really want to make sure you know what kind of a virtual outfit you're selecting for your avatar oh i'm already there i'm gonna go full furry can't wait to have a tail <laughs> So, Kelly, so Marjorie Taylor Greene, the uh, pro-QAnon member of Congress, is in hot water once again. What's going on? So, okay, throwback a couple weeks ago. Do you remember how Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lynn Wood, the QAnon attorney, were feuding? He called her a communist and she shot back. She implied that he was working with federal agents to bring down January 6 rioters. And all this was kind of a window into this MAGA civil war. It is funny, you know, if I could just interject here. It's funny how common it has become an insult. I mean, this is a member of Congress, right, who's accusing someone of being like a federal agent. It used to be like 20 years ago, it would be like eight skinheads in a room with like a couple guns would be accusing one another of being feds. And now it's just everyone's like, well, you disagree with me. I can only assume you're on the FBI's payroll. It's it's literally like this is like out of a Maoist struggle circle, you know, like, oh, he, he's a fad. Who's is he wearing a wire? And no, these are literal members of the federal government <laughs> calling each other feds. I love it. But yeah, so this is really kind of a, a window into this MAGA feud between people like Linwood who say the election was stolen. Therefore, it, it, it's this kind of nihilistic worldview saying don't even worry about future elections until we take back the country by a pseudo fascist force. And people People like Marjorie Taylor Greene, who are a little bit cannier or at least know where their fundraising money is coming from and saying, hey, you know, we better be at least invested in elections. Turns out there might be more to that feud than just some uh, commie name calling because Linwood is now accusing Marjorie Taylor Greene of owing him thousands of dollars in unpaid legal fees. He posted this to his Telegram last week. I have never received a return phone call from Marjorie Taylor Greene. Guess she does not want to talk with me or pay my legal bill for services rendered. The bill was only $5,000. I am fine with writing it off. I also plan to write off Marjorie Taylor Greene. (laughs) He goes on to say, I'm not a fan of communists that have infiltrated our country. So the thing is that he says he's going to write off this bill, whatever. But it's a little more complicated than that. <laughs> also, I can tell you, Lynn Wood is not in a financial situation to be writing off any bills. Oh, no. <laughs> he was or, or or is being sued by uh, a construction company involved with his plantation, Tomotley. I love that he has a plantation. Of course he has a plantation. Well, and, and he's been turning a lot of parts of the plantation into, uh, into business ventures, like a wedding venue and stuff. He's embroiled in a lawsuit with his as- associates over what appears to be the Nick Sandman settlement. So, I mean, th- this is not a guy just to who I, I, I think is, is wise to just be writing all this stuff off. Yeah, I mean, $5,000, like, y- you better be really pulling in the plantation weddings to uh, start recouping that. I didn't know you could make a plantation wedding even worse, but there you go. Um, but, okay, so Linwood actually has some surprising recourse here because if he were just giving these services to Marjorie Taylor Greene as an individual, then it's kind of hard for lawyers to recoup that after a year has passed or so. But it turns out he might have been providing these legal services to her campaign itself. And while lawyers are allowed to like donate their time, 
they can only do it for certain things on campaigns. And one thing that is not covered are defamation lawsuits, which, hey, Marjorie Taylor Greene is involved in a ton of those as well. And it seems like he was representing her in defamation cases when she didn't pay the bill. So he's got a little bit of leverage here. Neither of them really seem like someone who can uh, take on a new campaign finance or uh, legal write-off in this moment. Right, yeah. So, so, I mean, what you're saying here is that, you know, this article from uh, our colleague Roger Sollenberger, I mean, basically the implication is that some finance, campaign finance laws might have been broken if he was working pro bono for her. That's right. I mean, you can work pro bono in certain elements of campaign law, but defamation lawsuits are sort of out of the question. It's ideally your campaign is not facing defamation lawsuits singular, let alone defamation lawsuits plural, which is what was going on in Marjorie Taylor Greene's campaign. So has Marjorie Taylor Greene responded to all this? Her campaign didn't respond to our colleague uh, Roger when he reached out. I don't think this is exactly something that they want on the record, right? It's um, quite a lot of that QAnon caucus is running into some filing errors recently. Uh, Lauren Boebert accidentally filed something last week saying that she was a candidate from Utah. Of course, she represents Colorado. So I don't think this is a story they really want um, blowing up there. And $5,000, not huge in the scheme of a campaign, but you know, you don't, you don't want to be skimping on your legal bills. Great. So, I mean, what do you think the prospects are that this gets to court? My guess is it's slim, right? But goddamn, would that be just, you know, it, it's <laughs> it, it's just something that you, you watch like it's on pay-per-view. My guess is Christmas is not coming for me early on this. I don't think it's going to court. But can you imagine, right? Because Lynn Wood is, um, he does not actually have a good recent track record as a lawyer itself. He uh, famously... Well, yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Uh, he... I, I didn't realize this until like a year later, but he's the guy who represented the um, the diver whom Elon Musk smeared as pedo guy, which seems like a pretty good layup if you're a defamation lawyer for that case. <laughs> Linwood dropped it. He he dropped the ball, and Elon Musk went off scot free there. So can you imagine? I mean, it's it's funny all these these lit- these libel threats that these lawsuit threats Linwood issues for just like really like really like mild stuff, and then he just can't pull off the the being <laughs> the guy being called a pedophile, and he's like, oh, sorry, man, I fumbled it. Oh, I guess you're not gonna get paid, dude. Can you imagine? Like, okay, you're you're the you're the hero diver, right? You like help rescue some kids from an underwater cave in Thailand. Elon Musk smears you as a pedophile for no goddamn reason. You hire who you think is a good defamation attorney, and then it turns out to be Lynn Wood. Like, oh my God. Some people have no luck. So Kelly, the Charlottesville lawsuit uh, pitting um, victims, uh, people who were hurt in Charlottesville versus the organizers of the white supremacist rally there back in 2017 has kicked off. What is going on? If you are one of a couple defendants in that case, it is a shit show. Basically, a pair of defendants, this is Richard Spencer, who is you know, a neo-Nazi, and Chris Cantwell, who's another neo-Nazi, who uh, famously cried on video after Unite the Right. Both of them have been dropped by their lawyers um, because they're just being uncooperative or not paying legal bills. So that means they are defending themselves on the stand. And this has led to some pretty, I would say, legally inadvisable tactics, including Cantwell dropping the N-word completely unprompted in his opening statements. 
Of course, if you are one of these defendants, you're trying to paint a more reasonable portrait of yourself. They're basically trying to argue that they were not culpable for the day's violence. But some of these outbursts aren't really making them seem like the most reasonable people. And in fact, in Cantwell's case, this has turned into a way for him to relitigate conspiracy theories about unite the right. So a lot of far-right figures, even though the driver of the car who attacked people, killed one woman, he's been convicted of murder in that case, the far-right is trying to salvage his image and say that he was innocent or that he was provoked. And so Cantwell is now on the stand badgering people who were attacked that day and trying to get them to shore up these already debunked conspiracy theories about supposed violence from the left. Is this a jury trial? It is, yeah. It took them a long time. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, these aren't really tactics that are going to endear you to a jury. And I think to an extent, Chris Cantwell knows he's kind of screwed. He is certainly not a sympathetic figure. Nonetheless, I don't think you have to, uh, you know, use slurs on your, in your first 10 minutes in court. Oh, and here's one for, I don't know nerds like me. But the other day, Richard Spencer was up there. He was, because he's representing himself, he's allowed to cross-examine uh, plaintiffs. And he was asking this kid um, about books that he'd like to read. <laughs> and he, uh, the, the plaintiff said, you know, he liked this book by the author Chimamanda uh, Ngochirichi. And Richard Spencer started spouting off some other titles that he believed Adichie had written. And in fact, they were just written by another Black author. So that's that's great. You know, another good way to uh, paint yourself as not racist and endear yourself to a jury. So I guess my question is, I mean, have the, you know, I, I hesitate to say more reasonable, but but the, the, the defendants who aren't really like trying to just blow up this trial. I mean, have they tried to separate themselves? Because like if I'd be watching this and, you know, Chris Cantwell's dropped the N-word and stuff, I'd be like, oh, no. Yeah, there are really concerted efforts to separate themselves, right? And part of that is, you know, a, a sound legal tactic. Some of them can be found uh, responsible where others can be kind of cleared. So a lot of them are going on and saying, well, if you look at the text messages that showed up in Discovery, I only texted him seven times. So, you know, we surely weren't best buds. But I think even today, we're recording on a Tuesday, the real backbiting has started in court this morning, and somebody testified that they were, one, trying to raise a private army for Richard Spencer, but when they raised that army, they would then kill Richard Spencer. So, yeah, we're, we're starting to see the, the fault That's the line. worst private army I've ever heard of. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's like Blackwater, but uh, set to yakety sax. <laughs> so this is not Richard Spencer, but this is someone else who is like, I'm, I'm gonna raise a private army and kill this dude. Right. Yeah. So the person testifying is the ex girlfriend of a fellow named uh, Elliot Klein. Elliot apparently said that he was going to raise a private army for Richard Spencer. Um, also, they were both uh, sleeping with the same person. So there's a lot of reasons for these folks to not not care for each other. And so wait, so Elliot and Richard are both defendants. They are both defendants. Was Richard Spencer like, what? Like, bro. <laughs> are you kidding me? There are no cameras in the courtroom. And oh, I am okay. absolutely devastated because this, this would be prime viewing material. Gosh. 
So Kelly, how are the other defendants' lawyers acting? So some of them are being a bit more reasonable. The attorney for uh, James Fields Jr., the uh, guy who murdered a woman with his car, is pretty much tapping out of this. He's saying, listen, my client's in jail for 30 lifetimes. What more do you want? But there have been some kind of questionable tactics from even some of the more professional lawyers. And yesterday, uh, an attorney representing a far-right group took the stand and basically asked a plaintiff whether the great replacement theory was valid. That, of course, is a far-right conspiracy theory about a plot to uh, replace, quote-unquote, replace white people in the United States. And this was a... uh, a credentialed attorney asking these questions from the stand, a judge struck them down. So as much as it's easy to make fun of a Chris Cantwell for just absolutely torpedoing his own defense, some of these other lawyers are not really covering themselves in glory either. Well, Kelly, so so this certainly seems like a like a normal trial that's you know proceeding apace here. And I, I I know you'll be following the the developments as they as they come up. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm I'm Plugged into this one for the long haul. All right, Kelly, this week on the pod, we have Tim Mack, NPR's Washington investigative correspondent and the author of a new book on the NRA, keeping up with uh, the various antics and, uh, and money misdeeds going on there. Tim is our former colleague here at The Daily Beast, and he has been on the NRA's tail for years. This book seems super scoopy, and we are excited to have him on. Yeah, I guess for the question for me is, you know, it seems like this book is, you know, the NRA seems to constantly be in shambles, and yet they seem to have totally won. Uh, so so, so I, I'm looking forward to getting to the bottom of that contradiction. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Okay, we're joined today on Fever Dreams by Tim Mack, NPR's Washington investigative correspondent and the author of a new book on chaos inside the NRA, Misfire, Inside the Downfall of the NRA. Tim, thanks for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. And we're also joined by Swin Soupsang, sometimes Fever Dreams host, who's so interested in this book, he had to join us. I'm popping back in while still on paternity leave right now. I hope listeners can hear how tired and fatigued I am in my voice. And just for another little bit of throat clearing, as some of our listeners may have picked up on uh, via other sources, Tim Mack is someone who used to work with us at thedailybeast.com. I used to live with Tim. Full disclosure, he was best man at my wedding. So this is going to be an incredibly hostile interview and grilling about <laughs> well, it's his. Fabulous. He's been lulled into a false sense of security. 
Um, so, so Tim, you know, this book is it, it centers on Wayne LaPierre, the head of the NRA, who turns out to be a far stranger character than I think anyone ever imagined. I guess, first of all, how did you get onto this story on, on the internal divisions and this chaos inside the NRA? Well, I, I've been writing about the National Rifle Association for years. But, you know, in terms of getting inside the organization, getting folks to talk to me, I mean, the NRA is a historically been a very tight-lipped place. It's a very secretive environment. And and it's a black box uh, to a lot of people. So what was interesting to me was to be able to pull back the curtain and really show some of the personalities and people who are inside this organization, what they're really like behind the scenes. Great. Tim, one takeaway that I've got from this book is that Wayne LaPierre is just a weird guy. Can you give us a characterization of who he is and how he operates? Right. So there's the public persona, right? Which is that he's this fervent Second Amendment advocate who's the CEO and executive vice president of the National Rifle Association. But privately, people who have known him for decades say he is anxious, he is cowardly, he's kind of anxiety-ridden, weak-willed, and, and really afraid of conflict on a personal basis. And that that explains a lot of the reasons why the National Rifle Association finds itself in so much trouble now. You know, your book opens with uh, Wayne LaPierre, you know, struggling to decide whether or not to go through with his wedding, like minutes before it's happening. You know, I would say that is not a great sign for the health of your marriage. What would you say is the strangest thing you discovered about Wayne LaPierre? Yeah, I mean, the wedding thing was really interesting. And the point of of that anecdote about Wayne LaPierre not showing up to his wedding was to kind of illustrate a broader problem with Wayne, right? which is that for years and to this day, that if people yell at him long enough, berate him enough. He ends up acquiescing to whatever it is that they demand from his bride on that day to lawyers to vendors of the National Rifle Association who want sweet deals in the in the to the tune of millions and millions and millions of dollars. Another fact that I learned about Wayne Lapierre is that he's just not into guns. Like he's not he's not really interested in firearms. He's he's kind of interested in the politics of firearms, but he's on occasion been downright dangerous with them in his hands. Elaborate on that, please. So he's someone who, on, for example, a, a video shoot day, uh, when someone called out to him, he turns around swiftly with the gun and points the no. gun at an individual who is talking to him. He's just not someone who's a, who's really into firearms in general. I mean, there's a there is a joke at NRA HQ, which is if, if people don't do well on you know their quarterly reviews, that they they their punishment will be. To have to go shooting with Wayne, right? Like that. That's like, you know, <laughs> like it's well known inside the National Rifle Association that he's kind of a, a klutz when it comes to firearms. There's even video that's been released of him going on a safari and shooting an elephant. A member of his party does shoot an elephant, and he tries to shoot it three times at point blank range and misses all three times while standing in front of the elephant. Uh, it's kind of embarrassing. How do you miss? An elephant at point blank range. The elephant was already down. <laughs> it was a really outrageous scene for a number of reasons, not least because you know a lot of people feel like you shouldn't be shooting elephants to begin with. But that compounded with Wayne Lapierre standing right in front of the downed elephant, trying to just put it out of its misery and missing three times in a row. This is all on video. It's a super embarrassing point for Wayne. We've got this portrait of someone who's really kind of a pushover. He's weak-willed. He doesn't 
like guns very much. How does he come to run this super aggressive gun-focused organization? It's like a really interesting story, right? Like this is someone who was not super ambitious. He joined as a lobbyist uh, in the 80s and he was originally a Democrat. He's someone who resisted promotions throughout his period of time in the NRA. And it just came to be that he was the only choice to do it. And he stayed for dozens of of years since. The way I kind of explain this is that his malleability, his personality has made him indispensable to so many powerful people in the National Rifle Association that there's no way for him to leave without upsetting some of these folks. That there are a lot of powerful people who get a lot of money uh, from Wayne LaPierre. And as such, they uh, have an incentive to keep him there. Wayne LaPierre hasn't really ever wanted to be the CEO of the National Rifle Association. In, in fact, in Misfire, I talk about what his real dream is, which is to own an ice cream shop in Maine. And he's been talking about this for <laughs> decades. God, that's so wholesome. <laughs> it's... Did he ever open one? I don't think he's ever opened one. I, I have no evidence that he's ever opened one. Couldn't, couldn't you do two things at the same time? I mean, he's a fantastically wealthy man. He could definitely front the money for it. Well, when the New York Attorney General started investigating the NRA's financial misconduct, what they found was tens of thousands of dollars of money went towards ice cream. Wayne Lapierre getting ice cream as <laughs> personal gifts oh. from friends and things like that. This is like his rosebud thing. Like the only time he's happy is thinking about an ice cream shop in Maine. <laughs> so, so much of the book uh, focuses on what I think we would call the corruption that has been rife within the National Rifle Association for uh, God knows how many years or decades. As this New York investigation into the famous gun group has been chugging along for recent years, how much of an existential threat do you think this actually is to the NRA in the sense of through your years of reporting, how much do you think this is a crisis that could actually bring them down in a significant way? So this is the, the most in peril the National Rifle Association has ever been. It's facing a revolt from some of its members. It's facing protests from its board of directors. It's got a serious financial crisis on its hands and a cash crunch in 2018-2019 time period, they could barely even make payroll. But the New York Attorney General's investigation and litigation with the NRA is a real game changer in the sense that it is absolutely existential. So the NRA was incorporated in New York, and so it falls under the rules and jurisdiction of the New York Attorney General. It can't be a nonprofit which carries all sorts of advantages, can't be a nonprofit without going through New York. And the New York Attorney General has asked a judge in that state to dissolve the National Rifle Association, arguing that it's so corrupt that it must be shut down entirely. And the NRA has given the AG plenty of evidence, plenty of reason to actually take this stand. Tens of millions of dollars of spending over just a short few years. One big spender who comes up in this book, who's a fascinating character to me, is Susan LaPierre. And you describe her as having almost this like shadow dictatorship within the NRA. Can you walk us through who she is and where her money is going? So Susan LaPierre, for all of Wayne's flaws, her flaws are kind of the opposite 
where Wayne is kind of cowardly and timid. She is assertive. And in a lot of ways, she's kind of the hidden hand behind the NRA that no one's really heard about. Susan is someone who uh, is considered by staff at the NRA as kind of like the first lady of the organization. She benefits greatly from NRA money. She gets private jets and limos, exotic meals, gifts paid for. And she lives in this kind of elite world of million dollar uh, donors to the NRA who are women. They have this hierarchy of brooches that identify how much money they've given to the NRA. They're always comparing um, clothing, jewelry, food and wine and things like that. It's a really interesting world. And Susan has a kind of obsession with loyalty. She's, she's always demanding it from her staff and from her donors. She very rarely gives it out in the same way, which is, I think, why a lot of folks have a bad view of her. You know, you mentioned both Wayne LaPierre and his wife, uh, you know, using the NRA like a piggy bank. I mean, I, I think for me, the most relatable moment about Wayne LaPierre was him spending tens of thousands of dollars on suits. I guess, first of all, do we have a sense of where he's buying these suits? Yeah, I mean, these this is hundreds of thousands of dollars in suits, actually six figures in suits at a um, boutique on Rodeo Drive called Zenia. It's an Italian menswear boutique. Oh, yeah, that's legit. He's gone there so many times. He has a personal shopper named Noah. (laughs) What is so special about these suits, though? Uh, We've all seen what feel like hundreds of photos and videos of Wayne LaPierre. I mean, he looks fine. It's just a suit. How could he possibly be spending this much money on suits? (laughs) I don't know. It's not the world that I generally (laughs) inhabit. I don't. I've never spent that much money on suits or even a, a small percentage of it i will say in wayne's defense those are legit suits i mean you you have like a guy like um paul manafort who had all his money and was blowing it at like very specific boot like just just like you know the kind of place you'd see in georgetown with like the the for sale like uh, that's always going out of business sale like he was spending his money there i mean wayne lapierre at least appears to be spending this money in a legitimate way with his suits but you know (laughs) what was the strangest expense that was on the Wayne and uh, Mrs. LaPierre's uh, tab. Let, let me take you in a, a little bit of a different direction, but this, the strangeness in it had to do with the way they were making some of these purchases in order to avoid disclosure, right? So as a nonprofit, the NRA uh, is required to list, you know, who our vendors are and, um, you know, what their staff make, for example. One way that the NRA would hide these suits and, lavish meals at this restaurant that they really liked in Alexandria called Landini's. Um, th- they would they would use their ad agency's credit card or, or use their ad agency's money and bill it to the ad agency. The ad agency would then in turn bill expenses to the NRA and the NRA would pay them off. Um, uh, the, the, the expenses would be filed in like this very broad, nondescript way. Uh, and so no one was really the wiser. Your new book uh, is obviously based on hundreds of pages of secret documents that have not been reported on before, um, numerous original interviews. Can you walk our listeners a little bit through sort of the process that you went through in obtaining some of these never-before-reported-on documents that make up a bulk of the bombshells in Misfire? Part of the backbone of the reporting on this book was these secret depositions that were filed under seal in court and not available to the public. But there are hours and hours and hours of 
major figures in the NRA talking about who said what, when, to whom, uh, who was in the room. And they're kind of like the gold standard of investigative reporting evidence, right? Because they're under oath, it's all written down, and it's all there for you to see. And, you know, I mean, the book was written during the pandemic, and I, I kind of made this major breakthrough during the worst days, uh, ironically, of the of the pandemic in, in kind of March of 2020, when everything was shut down. A source indicated that they were willing to share some, some of these documents. Um, and so there's no way for me to meet this person by using public transit or even getting an Uber. So I ended up renting a moped and driving for what seemed like hours and meeting a source in a parking lot. And the source drives up, rolls the window down and says, the documents are in the passenger seat. And so I reach in, grab the documents, put them in my backpack and I kind of moped off. And that's one of the, <laughs> that's one of the ways that I got some of the thousands of pages of you know, secret documents and internal NRA emails that I end up using for the book. Give us a taste of what came out of that backpack that then made up the book. In those documents, I'm able to paint a scene of the actual uh, infighting that happens inside the NRA. I'm able to quote people because they're re recalling under oath what was said in the room. So one of the big clashes in the book is between Wayne LaPierre and the NRA president uh, a couple of years ago, Oliver North. So Oliver North joins the NRA as the president in the 2018-2019 timeframe. And he's obviously, you know, he's committed to the goal of the NRA, which is the Second Amendment. But he starts looking into what's happening here and he realizes there's some deep problems, some deep rot in the organization. And he wants to push for an internal audit of the finances of the group. Wayne won't have it. And basically they kind of clash in this this climactic scene in an Indianapolis hotel suite days before the annual convention when Trump and Pence are about to are going to come to speak and Wayne pushes Oliver North out of the presidency and I'm able to illustrate that whole what happened all behind the scenes because I'm basing it on sworn testimony from the major players that were there it will never get old to me that Oliver North during the Trump era, ended up playing a major role in the NRA. Mr. Iran fucking Contra. <laughs> I mean, if you wrote that in like the year 2000 as like sort of a uh, liberal satire about gun culture in America, you would get laughed out of the writer's room for it being too on the fucking nose. <laughs> Tim, you have this like, it's something out of a spy movie, right? You're mopeding out, you get the handoff of documents have you received any like pushback from the NRA over your reporting so far? It's interesting. I mean, I uh, have obviously reached out to the NRA and Wayne LaPierre and the major players in the book asking for interviews and, of course, sending a detailed list of questions in which I ask, you know, the major points, the major reporting points and ask if they want to comment. But I haven't heard from the NRA about this particular thing. No. No legal threats have been flying yet? Just nothing? No legal threats. Not peep from Not them? legal threats. I mean, they're in, in the midst of a number of very serious pieces uh, of litigation right now. I mean, just last year, they filed for bankruptcy in something that's probably a multi-million dollar cost in terms of legal fees in order to do it. That was ultimately rejected by the bankruptcy judge. But they're already involved in quite a number of, uh, of, of litigation uh, situations already. 
I mean, this may be sort of a hard prediction to make, but given that everything that's roiling the NRA right now, what do you think it looks like in five or 10 years? I mean, this is maybe the most fearsome and one of the most notorious, if not the most notorious lobbying outfit and a gun organization in modern American history. And the idea that it is suffering through this existential crisis seems almost surreal to me as someone who has just observed them even casually ever since I was a kid. In five or 10 years, what do you think they look like? Do you think they're still around, but they're a shadow of themselves? And if so, is there anything or anyone who can possibly fill the vacuum that the NRA would have occupied given the past uh, several decades of their power? I mean, I think the answer depends on two kind of major things. Is Wayne Lapierre still around? I mean, I, I think it's very difficult for the NRA to find its way out of the mess they're in right now while there isn't trust among its members for the current leadership. So is Wayne Lapierre still around? But like we talked about earlier, the New York Attorney General's investigation and litigation with the NRA is going to be really very decisive about what is the future of this group, right? Like if the New York AG is successful, then there will be a long drawn out process, legal process through which the NRA will have to be shut down or dismantled or its component parts moved around. And that's going to be very interesting and dramatic to see. As for whether or not there's another organization out there that could possibly replace it, there really isn't. The NRA is the only game in town when it comes to you know its its size, its political power. Right. Like the, the gun owners of America are not going to fill the void if there is a void to fill. It's just not going to happen. There is no other group that even comes close to matching its intensity and its abilities. Okay. So obviously, uh, Misfire goes deep on the LaPierres, the Oliver Norse of the world. Who is a figure, a mover and shaker who may not be shall we say, a gun-owning household uh, name, who you discovered through your years of reporting was one of the key figures behind the gun group who may not make the splashy headlines that someone as flamboyant as Wayne LaPierre frequently has. Well, you know, we haven't talked at all about Maria Butina, who is this kind of Russian citizen who got involved with the National Rifle Association, is actually one of the reasons I started writing about the NRA was in 2016, 2017, around there, I sat down in a, in a coffee shop with a source and the source was saying, there's this Russian graduate student at American University. She's running around claiming to be, you know, all, to be tied with the Russian government and also a link between Russia and the Trump campaign. And she's at all these NRA events and networking with uh, these NRA officials. You, you should take a look at it. And I did, and I wrote a s series of stories for the for the Daily Beast at the time, and kind of discovered how she got linked up with the NRA and took a delegation of NRA officials to Moscow and ended up playing the NRA to her benefit. And she was ultimately charged and convicted of conspiracy to be an unregistered Russian agent. She spent time in prison and ultimately was deported. Right, and this was sort of one of those. GOP Russia's bizarro subplots that emerged during the earlier part of the Donald Trump presidency. And as you detail meticulously in the, the book, the Obama administration was a total windfall in so many ways, particularly financially, for the NRA. And as Trump is campaigning in 2016, the NRA emerges as one of the most Trumpy major organizations that ends up backing Donald Trump's candidacy in 2016 and obviously is a huge backer of his subsequent presidency. Detail for our listeners how 
the Trump years, even though the NRA ostensibly got exactly what they wanted in a President Trump, ended up being sort of a monkey's paw moment for the National Rifle Association. So yeah, you're right. I mean, the National Rifle Association spent more money helping to elect Trump than even Trump's own super PAC at the time, tens of millions of dollars, right? But the NRA really does do well when there's a Democrat in office. And so they did really, really well during the Obama years, selling this idea of Obama's going to take away your guns or your gun rights. And that boosts fundraising and that boosts membership. Predictably, though, uh, when a Republican is in office, that fundraising falls. And there was no strategy inside the NRA of what to do to deal with that shortfall. And so when that happens, the NRA faces this very sudden cash crunch. We've talked about how they couldn't even make payroll, almost couldn't make payroll in 2018. And as that cash crunch happens, a lot of the corrupt spending, millions of dollars of corrupt spending that was occurring during the Obama administration, suddenly starts to bubble up to the surface. And so what turns out to be the NRA's kind of apex, this election of Donald Trump, turns out to be this pivot point in which they start their very sharp decline. And that's why we find ourselves today, right? The NRA in this serious, serious crisis. And that traces all the way back to when Donald Trump was elected. So the butterfly effect of Donald Trump's upset victory against Hillary Clinton at the end of 2016, you could argue played a role, if not a decisive role, in what's happening to the NRA right now. I think so. I mean, a lot of the infighting does occur because there's not enough money to go around suddenly to to make everyone who's involved with an NRA happy. And so when it all falls apart, people start sniping. They, 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 start, they start filing lawsuits against one another. They start talking to investigative reporters like me for the book. Okay, so Tim, you know, your book chronicles all of this this chaos within the NRA, and yet it seems as though the, the, the NRA's agenda, which is opposing gun control, has never been more powerful or, or certainly, uh, you know, is doing pretty well. I mean, you know, we have a Democratic president, uh, Democratic Congress, yet it doesn't seem like gun control is really anywhere on their agendas. I mean, has the NRA just outlived its usefulness? I mean, has it has it won and now it's just become obsolete? It's a really interesting question, and it's something I've thought a lot about. So the NRA has 4.9 million members. At least that's what they say. That's what Wayne said when he was on the stand during the the bankruptcy trial. Um, And the the fact of the matter is that those members still, their very existence uh, and and the implicit threat of their kind of lighting up the the phone lines if gun legislation were to be introduced in a serious way, that implicit threat still exists whether the NRA is, is struggling financially or whether it's financially successful. They've created over the last decade this big movement that stands ready to be activated, whether the National Rifle Association as a group based in uh, Northern Virginia, whether that entity is thriving or not. I still can't get the image out of my head of Wayne LaPierre being like the (laughs) just goofiest person with a gun. Yeah, there's also this one anecdote of Wayne LaPierre after a mass shooting and the NRA is gathering to try to figure out, hey, what are they going to do strategically and and how are they going to deal with the crisis? And Wayne is so overwhelmed by the pressure that he hides behind a curtain and uh, everyone's arriving for the meeting and they can just see his feet sticking out from from behind the curtain. Uh, because that's the only way he can he can find to, to to comfort himself in that moment of crisis. I mean, after school shootings, Wayne is often just totally beset with 
anxiety about what it means for him personally. He's worried about his own security. He's worried about, you know, is he going to be safe? That he's totally overcome by that feeling and and not being able to handle it. Wow. Well, I mean, it, the book is really filled with uh, with anecdotes like that. It's just a fascinating uh, look inside a uh, an American institution, you know, uh, for for better or worse. The book is called Misfire: Inside the Downfall of the NRA. Uh, that's Tim Mack. He's at on Twitter at Tim K Mack M A K. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And now for Fresh Hell. Will, your uh, best friend JFK Jr. is back in the news. He seems to be uh, roaming Dallas, if reports are right. What's happening there? The JFK Jr. mood, I would say, is riding high. So the backstory here is that we know QAnon believers, uh, you know, a vocal faction of them, also widely despised by other QAnon believers, believes that JFK Jr. is to return and, you know, did not really die in a plane crash in 1999 and maybe is teaming up with Donald Trump, whatever. So the, you know, last week we talked about there were two rival JFK Juniors at a QAnon convention. Now, you know, at least 100 QAnon believers have traveled to Dallas um, and are milling around at, you know, historically notable places uh, connected to the JFK assassination because they believe that JFK Jr. will return. Now, you might wonder, what's going on? <laughs> you know, how is this happening? So, Stephen Monticelli, who's a uh, reporter we've had in Dallas, uh, we've had on the uh, podcast in the past, he took a couple pictures of, you know, several dozen QAnon believers sort of milling around. Basically, what's happening here is there's a couple Telegram accounts that specialize in gematria, which is, you know, sort of the the occult use of numbers and tying them to letters. So these guys are really into, into this kind of code kind of stuff. And, and there's a faction of QAnon that does this. So, for example, if your name is uh, Catherine with a C, you'd be like, okay, so C, that's a three, and an A, that's a one. And then suddenly you, like, combine all these things and sort of look for significant numbers. So, for example, I was watching a live stream of this event, and this guy came up to a woman and she said, Gwendolyn. He says, what's your name? This is a guy named Patriot Dave. And she says, my name's Gwendolyn, 119. 119? Mary Magdalene, Nikola Tesla, birth no. of Jesus, 9-11. So, and this this is what I should say did not like was not like totally out of her mind. I mean, this is this is just there's just like you can kind of make these numbers and letters say whatever you want, right? Um, you can, you know, people look at significant uh birthdays or death days and that kind of stuff. So point being, a couple of these telegram accounts have cooked up the idea that JFK Jr. Um, and the original JFK and Jackie Onassis Kennedy and the whole gang uh, would be unveiling themselves either on Monday, November 1st, Tuesday, November 2nd. Um, it, so, you know, a lot of them gathered, they got in this hotel and they were like, they've been looking forward to the big return. It's like Woodstock almost for people who've been dead for decades, you know? They're just, they're just, you know, waiting it out, ready. They've, they've got the, some of these people, they had like t-shirts, right? They have like Trump JFK 2024 t-shirts. You know, I love how nakedly that throws Pence under the bus. It's like, nah, we're going with the dead guy. You know, it's, um. <laughs> we, we, we prefer. <laughs> yes. Bring us the corpse. No, I'm sorry. But they, yeah, they are fully all in on this. I can't state it enough. Like they are staking out important Kennedy death areas like they're hanging out on the grassy knoll because they think someone is going to like emerge and speak there uh, this week. It's 
it's really weird. It's like death tourism, but they're fully convinced that this guy's alive and that he's a, uh, you know, an operative working to bring down the deep state. Yeah, I mean, so so this whole thing has, is, has expanded in many ways. So now they've become convinced that sort of any celebrity who died tragically uh, is also going to be part of this entourage. Because the idea is that these people did not really die, but they went into hiding to avoid the deep state. So, like, I'm just thinking of like a Disney Hall of Presidents and like all <laughs> yes. the dead people, all the significant dead people are here and they're fine and they sing a little song. So- so what, what's happening is that they've now started like picking out random people who walk by them and they're like, oh, like, like, like apparently there was a, there was a homeless guy that they were convinced was Richard Pryor. Oh no. And, and they were like, so, so I was watching this thing and one of these QAnon promoters was like, yeah, you know, uh, we, we saw Robin Williams walking around and, uh, and, and so yeah, I was listening to the live stream of this and there was just, was, this really kind of summed it up for me. Some guy was like, yeah, uh, you know, I saw Dale Earnhardt. <laughs> And then someone says, there's a rapper here. We're not sure of his name, though. So, of course, these guys don't know any rappers, right? Oh, my And then God. one guy goes, maybe it's Tupac. Uh, so the, so, so the, 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 the thing, though, is that, you know, people have been asking me, well, when's the big moment? When's this supposed to happen? But they've been very vague about it for obvious reasons because they don't want, like, a big countdown and then nothing to happen. And the, the, so they keep kind of like they're like, I don't know. Like, people were getting really heated on the live stream with the moderators because they were saying, like, well, is this going to be on TV? Where can I watch this? Like, what time is it? And they're like, we don't know. It, it's just going to happen. Just don't worry about it. So, you know, the <laughs> this idea of kind of like celebrity, your your, your favorite uh, dead celebrity will reappear. So people were getting really emotional on the live stream because they were arguing about, you know, people were, were demanding some kind of concrete answers about this. And then someone said, you know, this woman's just crying. She's like, I'm sorry, y'all can't see what's happening here. It is so amazing. You know, we're seeing Robin Williams, all this stuff. And she's just like, you know, getting really emotional. And someone said, like, you know, we've all been so lonely during the pandemic and this, you know, this vision of JFK returning has really given us something to believe in. And then someone just said, well, I can't wait to see Kobe Bryant. Oh, I shouldn't laugh. It's like it's these are these are their treasured imaginary friends. But oh, it's yeah, so much of it, I think, is just like loneliness feeding into this. Right. You know, it's it's this weird parasocial relationship that people build up with with celebrities. And I feel like when celebrities are dead, you can even project more of your own neuroses onto them. You know, it's um, they can't really be acting out in public or pushing back on your perception of them. So yeah, of course, when they come back, they are going to be your best friends. And Kobe's going to ask if you want to join his like three on three pickup team. And Robin Williams <laughs> is, you know, is going to tussle your hair warmly. Um, yeah, I mean, of course, it's alluring. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's a pretty grim, grim scene. As you said, I mean, there, there is a constant, you know, uh, talk in, in QAnon and, and in this sort of faction in particular of like, you know, well, my own family, I, I've alienated my own family, but this is my new family now. And, you know, one thing I want to stress, so look, I mean, this thing last night, it's probably grown since that, or excuse me, this thing Monday night, you know, it's about a couple, you know, at most, I would say it's about 100 people there. Uh, you know, I think there's there were about 2000 people on the live stream I was watching, you know, so it's not like the most the biggest number of people, but people were coming from really all over the place. I mean, there were people who came there from California, from New York, just to essentially mill around and then say, well, oh, well, I guess I guess it didn't happen. Yeah. You know, it's so funny. A couple episodes ago, we were talking about cults and we were talking about this book when prophecy fails and it chronicled this 1950s cult. They believed in aliens were going to come down and uh, 
um, you know, tell them they were the chosen ones. And they stood outside in this backyard for ages. Nothing happened. And then they had to pivot. I remember they went out and they sang Christmas carols and they said, well, it was really about the true spirit of the holidays. And that's kind of like what has to happen here. People show up, they want an epiphany. I mean, traveling to uh, from New York to Texas is not a small expense. And so they have to change the meaning of what it was all about after inevitably nothing happens. And that's where you start hallucinating Ryan Williams, excuse me, Robin Williams and uh, Richard Pryor walking around among you because it has to have meant something if you paid $600 for airfare. Yeah. You know, there's another sort of, you know, QAnon is is often seen as sort of a a disease of the boomers in particularly the, uh, you know, kind of the rank and file QAnoners. And to sort of sum it all up, there's a Rolling Stones concert in Dallas, I think, on the November 3rd. And they have become convinced that, in fact, the JFK revelation may happen at the Rolling Stones concert. That truly is the uh, the, the boomer <laughs> QAnon Woodstock. <laughs> There's a couple guys who are the, the ringleaders of this who do their gematria and sort of, uh, you know, stare at the numbers long enough to figure it out. And I can't make this up. But basically, the guy who's the ringleader of this, he's been wearing a sign that says or a, a pin. He's been wearing a pin that says dumbass on it. And, you know, I, I, I know this is too, he's trying to, I guess, reclaim it, or maybe someone called him a dumbass once, and, and now this has become his his affectionate name. But, I mean, this just this guy, I mean, he, he's really labeling himself as he as he sort of leads his flock around. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's amazing how people embrace things. I was at a Flat Earth conference a couple years ago. This woman had a big, like, pageant sash and said, Miss Flat Earth. And when you asked her, like, hey, why are you wearing this? It's because her church kicked her out, and that was the name that they jokingly labeled her with is Miss Flat Earth. So she made it into a pageant thing and wears that in public now. It's like, man, you don't have to do that. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's bumming me out. You know, and the other thing I, I'd say is that QAnon, uh, the, sort of the, the mainstream QAnon believers are absolutely furious over this. Uh, they do not believe that uh, Robin Williams is going to perform Good Morning Vietnam uh, in the in the JFK in the Dealey Plaza, and you know they see this uh, uh, you know as just a, another embarrassment for the otherwise very rigorous and uh, you know credible QAnon movement. That's right. It's a, it's a credibility crisis. We can't have any uh, any wackos in this movement. <laughs> On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. 
Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.